Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Caitlin Tan. Decades after HIV was first discovered, there's still discrimination. Elena Imes recalls being harassed at Walmart after a customer learned she has HIV. That hurt so bad, so embarrassed. And that woman really thought she was warning everybody. Some people living with HIV are afraid to tell people in their community, even family. The biggest fear that someone with this has, this infection has, is doing it alone. And that often causes you to become depressed because you are lonely. We'll also hear why a needle exchange program in Charleston, West Virginia, was shut down amid public outcry. And three years later, the city is now at the center of the most alarming outbreak of HIV in the nation. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. I admit it, it's scary to talk about HIV and other needle-borne illnesses. And maybe that's why so many of us don't talk about these issues. But what if the stigmas are leading these health crises to worsen? HIV can spread throughout communities quickly, especially in places where there are high rates of people who use drugs. And last month, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention warned that Charleston, West Virginia, has the nation's most alarming outbreak of HIV. Public health officials have been warning us for years that Appalachia is vulnerable to outbreaks of the disease. Those warnings go back to at least 2015, when in another part of the country, a rural county in Indiana, saw a massive outbreak of HIV. The number of HIV infections has jumped from 89 to 135. Scott County has an HIV epidemic on their hands. The source? Needles shared and reused by drug users. So Indiana's governor at the time, Mike Pence, declared a public health emergency in Scott County, Indiana. The emergency declaration allowed public health officials to create the first legal needle exchange program in Indiana and the first in a non-urban area in the United States. Now, before we dig in further, a needle exchange program is a medically accepted practice that allows drug users to exchange their used and possibly infected needles for clean new ones. And in southern Indiana, the needle exchange program worked. They went from 153 new HIV cases in 2015 to five new cases in 2018. And experts say this is largely thanks to the needle exchange. Now, Charleston, West Virginia, finds itself in a similar situation, except Charleston's health department's needle exchange program was closed in 2018. Carol Lofton reported on the controversy surrounding this in a story that we originally aired back in 2019. The only thing that remains of the harm reduction program outside the Canal Charleston Health Department is a syringe kiosk where people can deposit used hypodermic needles. At its peak, the program served more than 400 people a week, mostly from Kanawha County, but surrounding counties as well, a factor that became a point of contention for many in the city. Outgoing Charleston Mayor Danny Jones has been outspoken on the issue. It became basically a a line of people just to line up to get needles on between 10 o'clock and 4 o'clock on any given Wednesday. In the months before it closed, Jones publicly called the program a needle mill and mini mall for junkies. On any given Wednesday, uh, they might have given out 12,000 needles. Actually, the average number of needles given out during the weekly Wednesday exchange was about 5,000, serving about 190 visitors. That's about 26 needles per person per week. The most needles the program ever gave out in a single week was just over 11,000 to 417 people. While 5,000 may seem like a lot, the average heroin user injects several times a day. So 26 needles a week gets a person about three injections a day with a clean needle. A, a syringe exchange program really should be called a harm reduction program. That's Dr. Artis Hoven, an infectious disease specialist with the Kentucky Department of Health. 
She says harm reduction is an all-encompassing idea to reduce the risk of many things associated with addiction. Provide naloxone. Provide referral to care for people with substance use disorder. Uh, They do HIV and hepatitis C testing. They refer to care uh, for those infected with HIV and hepatitis C. And in Charleston, it seemed to work. While the Charleston program was open, the city did not see an HIV outbreak. Fifteen counties in southern West Virginia did have a small HIV outbreak. None of the original three counties involved had a harm reduction program. Recorded incidents of hepatitis C rates did increase during the course of the program, but so did efforts to test more people. So we're doing um, rapid hep C and HIV testing today. It takes about 20 minutes. Do you like to go ahead and get that taken care of while you're here? But in Charleston, reports of discarded needles in the community began to skyrocket, and people were alarmed. Needle pickup call. They had a needle that was left in a shopping cart. I'll take care of it. All right, thanks, sir. Appreciate it. Firefighters reported having to crawl over them while putting out fires in abandoned structures. A local elementary school requested a biohazard container from the city so they could clean up an alley before school. And police officers reported finding huge numbers of syringes on people who were arrested. Both the Fraternal Order of Police and the Charleston Professional Firefighters Association wrote letters to city council expressing major safety concerns for first responders. Issues might have been exacerbated because the program grew really fast. In the two years the program was open, more than 651,000 needles were distributed. Only about 66% of those needles were returned. But according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the risk of contracting HIV is 0.3% for healthcare professionals stuck by needles on the job. Which is why, for outside experts like Peter Davidson from UC California, needle litter is an annoying but not the major public health concern an HIV or hepatitis C outbreak would be. No one in the world has ever obtained HIV by stepping on a needle in the street. Like, needles in the street are are a piece of trash. You know, it's not something you want seeing laying in the gutter, but they're not actually a very hazardous object. In some ways, it doesn't matter what the risk is. If someone finds a dirty needle on a playground or in a shopping mall bathroom, public reaction is strong. And for non-users any risk of contracting HIV or hepatitis from a dirty needle is too much. But reactively closing a program in the biggest city in the state could have huge public health implications for the region. And when needle exchange programs like the one in Kanawha County are shut down reactively. That's former Commissioner for Public Health Rao Gupta in an interview shortly before he left his job. And those decisions are not in the best interest of the community. I think it plays into the hands of that stigma. And it is more harmful long term than it is beneficial. That was Dr. Rao Gupta talking with reporter Carol Lofton back in 2018. Gupta was a public health official in West Virginia. He's now a medical advisor to the nonprofit group March of Dimes. The science behind harm reduction programs is unequivocal. These initiatives help save lives and prevent the spread of disease. Supporters say that needle exchange, especially when coupled with addiction treatment options, can help pull people out of their addictive behaviors and get them on the path to recovery. But for harm reduction programs to be successful, most public health experts say the residents in the community must support the program. And that's really where things fell apart in Charleston. Again, from the Inside Appalachia Archives, Carol Lofton reports. In late March, shortly after the Kanawha Charleston Health Department closed their harm reduction program, Mayor Danny Jones wrote in a letter to then-Commissioner for Public Health Rao Gupta, asking that the West Virginia Bureau for Public Health perform an audit of the program. Rao Gupta. Uh, The review provided uh, very specific recommendations that needed to be met in order to restart the program. These included improving data collection and analysis about exactly how many people were using the program and what services they were using, putting in place a plan to deal with needle litter, improving communication with community stakeholders, and requiring that people needing needles pick them up in person. After the audit came out, the Kanawha Charleston Health Department requested a review of the audit from seven harm reduction experts around the country, including Dr. Peter Davidson from UC California. All seven letters were pretty critical of the audit. I think the best way to describe it is that the people who wrote the audit had a very 
particular idea in mind about what a syringe distribution program should look like. In his letter, Davidson wrote, almost all of the recommendations in the audit represent severe and in some cases unconscionable barriers to effective evidence-based primary prevention of bloodborne virus transmission. You know, one of the reasons syringe distribution programs exist in the way that they exist at all is because the sort of traditional public health clinic model hasn't served people who use drugs very well at all and hasn't been very good at providing them with the basic tools they need in order to prevent the transmission of uh, infectious disease and reduce overdose. Davidson says ideally, harm reduction programs have as low a barrier of entry as possible, so the maximum amount of people will participate. And the recommendations made in the audit would raise the threshold of how easy it was to access resources. But he also says there's room to adjust programs to fit the communities they serve. I wouldn't expect a needle exchange in rural Appalachia to look the same as a needle exchange in San Francisco, for example. That would that would likely lead to a program that didn't serve the population very well at all. And in Charleston, there were actually two harm reduction programs being held simultaneously, but pretty differently. The one at the health department and a much smaller clinic-based program operated by HealthRight, the largest free clinic in the state. Angie Settle is executive director. Back in 2011, we noticed an increase in patients that were coming in um, with various stories, uh, histories of being diabetic. They would pick up the needles for the program, but not the insulin. She says they began to suspect an increase in IV drug use among their patient population. So uh, we kind of quietly started the program uh, with the needle exchange. It was mainly internal, not something we broadcasted. Uh, but those patients that needed it knew of the service and um as they came in, we weren't screening every patient for IV drug use. Because HealthRight is a clinic working with a limited number of patients with whom they already have close relationships, they could run their program pretty differently than the health department, which was trying to do a mass public health push, serving the whole city. HealthRight is also a one-to-one exchange. You bring a needle back, you get a fresh one, which for most harm reduction experts is not considered best practice. But since patients can come as many times a week as they want, Settle said it seemed the best choice for her program. They also require every patient to meet with a counselor when they come in for needles. Basically, participation in HealthRight's program requires a lot more effort from patients, which means not everyone will use it. But Settle says that running a conservative program is preferable to not having a program available at all. Dr. Artis Hoven is an infectious disease specialist with the Kentucky Department of Health. Yeah, the reality here is that you've got a drug-using population that, in fact, is going to keep using drugs whether or not you have a syringe exchange program or not. But without a program, she says, the community is just opening itself up to easier spread of communicable diseases. You know, there is something called the art and science, if you will, of risk or harm reduction. And and for many of us, we're still learning what that art is and what the science is. We're trying to make it better and to make it something that is more effective. But if Charleston were to consider public health harm reduction again, a lot of community healing, conversations and compromise would likely have to occur. And the biggest barrier may be one of the most intangible ones, addressing stigma. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Carol Lofton. There have been a few updates since Kara originally reported that story in 2018. First, on a personal note, I want to say, Kara, we miss you. She's been focusing on raising a toddler and is soon having her second daughter. We really appreciate all the reporting you did on this complicated health story. At this time, Charleston, West Virginia doesn't have a syringe exchange program based at its local health department. So nonprofits and community groups are stepping in. The local nonprofit Health Right that Care mentioned in the previous story is still operating a very small needle exchange program in Charleston. And there is another group called Solutions Oriented Addiction Response, or SOAR. They've been doing needle exchange, HIV testing, and naloxone training in the west side of Charleston. 
That's the neighborhood where the recent cluster of HIV cases have been identified. The CDC reported that there were 35 new HIV cases related to injected drug use last year in Charleston. Now, for context, New York City, which has more than 100 times the population, had 36 cases. That's only one more case than Charleston, West Virginia. So to help catch us up to speed on all of this, I'm going to turn things over to reporter Kyle Vass, who's been covering this issue for several years. He chats with our new health reporter, June Leffler. In the CDC's most recent report on this outbreak, they did recommend that the county look into syringe programs to combat the HIV outbreak. Can you give me a sense of what has happened in the past regarding syringe programs um, operated by the local health department. So in 2018, the Canal Charleston Health Department shut down its syringe program uh, because an ordinance came down from city council that gave the power to set up the rules for the syringe program to the police chief. And in setting up the rules, he designed a program that wasn't in accordance with the CDC's best practices. So the head of the Canal Charleston Health Department at the time, Dr. Michael Brummage, chose to shut the program down rather than operate it and potentially cause harm. So since then, hepatitis C has gotten out of control in Kanawha County. Uh, An entire percent of the county has gotten hep C in the past two years since that program shut down. The state health department came out with a report of that program that was completely negative. It, It came down on that syringe program as being horribly run, but... What's never talked about is the fact that there were six public health experts who looked at the report that the state did and just really tore into that report because the report that was overseen by Dr. Raul Gupta, who's now on Biden's transition team, that report was written from a clinical perspective. It wasn't written from a public health perspective. So probably the most damaging thing that has come out in the past three or four years in regards to the syringe programs, in regards to harm reduction in Charleston, is that report. If you talk to people today, they're like, oh, that report came out. That that program was horribly run. Even if they don't know about the report, they, they have this idea that the program was being misrun or, or improperly run. And it's it's completely not true from a public health standpoint or from you know the perspective of public health experts. And if that syringe program has went away, Tell me if there is anything that has taken its place. Um, Since that program shut down, nothing has really stepped up to replace the Canal Charleston Health Department syringe program. There is a volunteer organization called SOAR that is doing distribution. But that group has been met with resistance by some people on Charleston City Council who want to see it shut down. Some of the initial pushback that SOAR was receiving was in reference to an ordinance that was put on the books by city council in 2015 that said any harm reduction group distributing syringes had to have the appropriate licensure from the state. The problem with that is that there is no licensure handed down from the state for harm reduction programs. There's only an optional certification. So now the city council is trying to amend the ordinance and change it so that it prohibits syringe distribution in Charleston from volunteer groups, that only groups that are officially certified from the state health department would be able to distribute syringes. And Kyle, the last thing I would like for us to talk about would be Senate Bill 334. This is a bill that would impact harm reduction programs. Can you give me a sense of what that entails? Yeah. So um, on February 18th of this year, the state Senate introduced Bill 334, And that would change what harm reduction groups are allowed to do in the state of West Virginia entirely. Um, The state senators who have proposed this have come up with their own rules as to what harm reduction programs need to be doing. And they go directly against CDC best practices for running a harm reduction program. For example, Having a strict one-to-one exchange where you get one syringe for every syringe you take back um, is not what the CDC recommends. In interviews with 
health professionals who run other syringe programs throughout the state have been told that having a one-to-one correspondence with a syringe program can actually be worse than having no syringe program at all. It ends up jading some of the participants uh, who can't bring back all of their syringes and ends up turning them away from the healthcare institutions altogether. So this bill would also require county commissions to sign off on any new programs. And again, county commissions aren't typically made up of, of doctors or public health officials. They're, they're elected officials who, um, they're not always the most qualified people to come up with public health programs. That was reporter Kyle Vass speaking with West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Appalachia Health News Coordinator, June Luffler. The group that Kyle mentioned, SOAR, which is doing needle exchange, has come under fire. Anecdotally, we've heard that volunteers with SOAR have received verbal threats and some have even been stalked or followed. Their addresses have even been published on social media by people who oppose their harm reduction program. After the break, we'll hear from several people here in Appalachia who are living with HIV. You're listening to Inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Hey, I have a favor to ask you. We're coming up on one year of living with a worldwide pandemic, and we want to hear from you. Our Inside Appalachia team is working on an episode looking back at this past year. How has your life changed? Where are the silver linings? And have you had to revamp or rethink your career, social life, family, or where you live? What's giving you hope? Tell us about it. We want to hear it all. Leave us a voicemail at 304-460-5582. We might use your voice in an upcoming episode. Again, that's Inside Appalachia, we are looking into a public health issue that's largely been overshadowed by the COVID-19 pandemic. But for years, public health officials have been concerned about an increased risk of HIV in parts of Appalachia. In 2015, the CDC investigated which areas in our country are most vulnerable to HIV outbreaks. And they found that the top 10 counties are in central Appalachia specifically in eastern Kentucky and southern West Virginia. And there's a reason central Appalachia is more vulnerable. The CDC found that places with a combination of high poverty, low access to health care, and rampant IV drug use were the most likely to be at risk for an HIV outbreak, as well as the spread of hepatitis C. So I spoke with Dr. Mishka Turplin, who's a physician and the Associate Medical Director for Friends Research Institute. It's an addiction think tank in Baltimore, Maryland. He spoke with me about the stigma around HIV and injected drug use, as well as the outbreak in Charleston, West Virginia. As we heard earlier, Charleston had 35 new HIV cases related to injected drug use last year. And the average number of cases in other cities the size of Charleston was less than one. So I asked Turplin to put the number 35 into context for us. In terms of what it means, um, it it means lots of different things. I mean, you have people's lives and um, you have, you know, subsequent transmission. This is just the ones that you've counted. 
you have uh, you know a cost of care associated uh, with the treatment, you know the chronic disease treatment of of, of this, um, and and a cost that's borne you know by the public health system um, primarily. And I think the big picture is that most of these cases are preventable. And what, generally speaking, when there's an HIV outbreak, what what are what's the path forward? I mean, wh- where does one start to try to get that under control? Um, I think you know, from a, a practical perspective. You know, you want to know what the extent of, you know, of, of the outbreak is uh, doing, you know, some form of, you know, contact tracing, perhaps uh, definitely increasing testing. Uh, and for people who test positive, making sure that they have, you know, access to treatment, because one of the principles, you know, of, of HIV care is that, you know, treatment is prevention. Um, the the medications available today are so much more effective than when I was in training, and and you know most people you know can achieve low viral loads and do not transmit. Um, so the core principles would be one: getting your hand head around what's actually going on, um, treating the people involved, and preventing you know further outbreaks or continuation of this. And that's really where I think consideration of syringe exchange services um, is critical. Now, Dr. Turplin, I want to talk to you about stigma. Mm-hmm. In Charleston, there is a lot of stigma, I would say, associated with HIV and injected drug use and needle exchange programs. They're really hot button issues that are very polarizing for people. I guess I want to know. What kind of effect does stigma have on people who have tested positive for HIV or do suffer from opioid use disorder or even just how does stigma affect a community's ability to deal with these issues? So stigma is is the word we commonly use. So stigma, you know, relates to um, the mark that somebody else has based upon their person or their behavior. Um, So in in many ways, stigma is like a them problem. You know, some other people have stigma. And in this context, there are multiple stigmas that you're talking about. The stigma of having a a substance use disorder, the stigma of having HIV, the stigma of injecting uh, drugs, um, and et cetera. But I think we need to focus on it's not just a them problem. Like, what is the us problem? And how we treat people um, and how we treat certain types of people differently based upon, you know, them having the condition of addiction or HIV or, you know, uh, injecting drugs. That's not stigma. That's discrimination. And, and I think that term is helpful because discrimination is something we can do something about. Stigma relates to social norms and deviation from norms, but discrimination describes our behavior. And I, so I would say people who inject drugs, people with addiction, uh, people with HIV um, can and do experience discrimination by healthcare providers, public health officials even, uh, and you know, the general population and certainly from uh, the media. So the thing that surprises me most is how well established the data are for syringe exchange programs in the prevention of HIV in contrast to sort of the resistance in acknowledging the evidence and uh, taking up uh, these services within a public health framework. There's a disconnect, and I think that disconnect is explained by stigma and discrimination. There, the evidence is basically in is is conclusive. The evidence, you know, is conclusive that syringe exchange services prevent 
HIV in the population. Um, so the lack of uptake of syringe exchange services is not because of you know people disagreeing about the evidence. It's because certain types of people, i.e., people who use drugs, aren't deemed worthy of a public health response. That was Dr. Mishka Turplin, who's the Associate Medical Director for Friends Research Institute in Baltimore. We've been talking today about the recent spike in HIV cases in Charleston. But communities in southern West Virginia have experienced outbreaks, too. About three years ago, our producer Roxy Todd went to Mercer County. She met up with people who are working on the front lines amid decreased funding and limited resources. Loud music pours out of a historic church in downtown Bluefield, West Virginia, around 7 on a Friday evening. 30 people are eating barbecue, beans, and chicken for a newly formed LGBTQ support group. As the guests grab their food and have a seat, a man stands inside the echoey church to talk. Now, you all got your goodie bags. His name is Daryl Kennedy, and he isn't a preacher. He's the executive director of a nonprofit called South Central Educational Development, which has its headquarters inside this old church building. Tonight's event is aimed at adults, though there is one high school student in attendance. Kennedy passes around goodie bags full of condoms and information about how to prevent sexually transmitted diseases. Read the information in them. It's good. We provided you with tons of condoms and lubrication. Safe sex is the best sex. As you can hear, the atmosphere in the room is different from a doctor's office. People are laughing, singing along. One person, a drag queen, gets up to dance, and the room erupts in applause. Kennedy is hosting this meeting as a way to talk with the LGBTQ community about the increasing risk of hepatitis and HIV in southern West Virginia and other parts of Appalachia. The risks are increasing because of high rates of drug use, combined with poor access to health care. On this night, Kennedy's organization is also hosting free HIV testing here in the church building. And prevention is number one. I think you got to catch it before it starts. So if you're not doing anything preventative, when you have an outbreak, you can't say, how did that happen? You know how it happened. You didn't do anything to stop it. Someone who agrees with Kennedy is Dr. Gordon Smith, a professor at the West Virginia University School of Public Health, who is studying the risk of an outbreak of HIV in southern West Virginia. Unfortunately, because the testing is so poor, we could be right in the middle of it and we wouldn't even know it. Smith's team received a $1 million grant last year from the Centers for Disease Control and the Appalachian Regional Commission to help increase surveillance and prevention of HIV and hepatitis C in southern West Virginia. The other lead researcher with the project is Dr. Judith Feinberg. You know, ideally, it should have been done five years ago, because at the very least, you could have prevent HIV and you could have also curtailed the spread of hepatitis C. Feinberg says her group plans on partnering with community-based organizations, like Kennedy's organization in Bluefield, to do more testing and outreach. Kennedy says he's on board with the partnership, but he's concerned that the WVU researchers are not going to fund his organization's efforts. We're not staffed large enough to actively go out and address this head-on with the community as we used to do. Kennedy used to do more HIV testing and prevention in southern West Virginia. But then, in 2009, his organization lost funding it had been getting from the Department of Health and Human Resources to do HIV prevention. It wasn't just his organization. About 10 years ago, the CDC began reducing funding for prevention and surveillance of HIV in states with a low number of people with the disease. States like West Virginia took some of the biggest cuts. One result has been the reduction of resources available for local community-based organizations like South Central, says Dr. Raul Gupta, commissioner of DHHR's Bureau for Public Health. Since 2009, HIV prevention in West Virginia has seen a reduction of about a million dollars from the CDC. In a statement, the CDC said, quote, Most funding is directed to the prevention activities that are most likely to have significant and lasting results on the HIV epidemic, end quote. But that strategy doesn't always work to prevent unexpected outbreaks. It was actually a, a, a pretty big surprise that we heard about what was going on in Scott County. This is Dr. John Brooks, a researcher with the CDC's Division of HIV AIDS Prevention. 
Back in 2015, Scott County, Indiana, an area that hadn't previously been a high-prevalence area, experienced a massive HIV outbreak. We marshaled an enormous amount of resources to really better, not only to try and stop the outbreak from growing, and then to also better understand what happened there and how we can prevent it from happening elsewhere. Brooks was one of the lead authors of a CDC study that concluded many of the nation's most vulnerable counties are in Appalachia. Now, in order to prevent more unexpected outbreaks, Brooks says they're looking at shifting more of their funding back to rural communities because the opioid epidemic is creating a higher risk here. Next year, West Virginia will be receiving an 18 percent increase for HIV prevention and surveillance as part of a new effort by the CDC. It will be the first increase in funding for HIV prevention the state has seen in 10 years. Exactly how much this funding will trickle down to community-based organizations, though, is unknown. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Roxy Todd. The group in Bluefield that Roxy reported about in that story, South Central Educational Development, well, they were recently awarded a federal grant to expand their outreach and do more testing of HIV in southern West Virginia. The grant is from the Ryan White HIV AIDS program. It's the first time this Southern West Virginia organization has received federal funding in nearly 30 years. Discrimination against people with HIV can add to the risk of widespread outbreaks. And here's why. If someone keeps their disease a secret or sees an HIV AIDS test as a source of shame or embarrassment, or if cases of HIV go undiagnosed, the rate of community spread increases significantly and clusters of these diseases get much worse. Back in 2018, Roxy Todd visited with some residents of Southern West Virginia who have HIV or AIDS. She wanted to find out what it's like to live with the stigma of a disease that's still taboo. Carl was in his senior year at Concord University in Mercer County, West Virginia, when he had some routine blood work done during a hospital admission. That's how he learned. They found out that uh, I was infected with HIV. He thinks he contracted the disease from a same-sex partner. Even though he used protection, he says his partner was careless one time. He says it's been a struggle telling people he has HIV because of the stigma against people with the disease. We're using his first name only because Carl still hasn't told everyone in his family. I have uh, two people out of my entire family that know. Even among some doctors, Carl says, he encounters homophobia. He recalls an early visit to a doctor in nearby Beckley. She, uh, in so many words, said, well, if I were you, I wouldn't have done the actions to get this. And that that set me back. That sent me spiraling that a medical professional that deals with these infections would be so crass to somebody that was so mentally fragile anyway, because I just uh, got that diagnosis. Carl stopped taking his medication for a few days. He says he almost gave up. Then he contacted the Ryan White program at Charleston Area Medical Center, where he now makes the two-hour round-trip drive for checkups. The stigma against people with HIV and AIDS can have a huge impact in rural communities. It affects what treatment options are available and makes it difficult for health officials to respond quickly to a possible outbreak. Tanya Basta, who chairs the Health Sciences College at Ohio University, has done research on the effects of stigma in rural Appalachia. There are providers who, in rural areas, unfortunately are still stigmatizing against their patients. And West Virginia does not have a high number of people with HIV or AIDS. But researchers like Basta worry there could be undiagnosed cases, especially in the rural areas of the state. Testing is an issue, and I'm not saying that stigma is any necessarily any higher in rural areas. It's just that because of the nature of living in small towns where everybody kind of knows everybody, word travels quickly. Few people living with HIV or AIDS in southern West Virginia are willing to tell their stories in public. Elena Imes is one of them. She has lived with the disease for 18 years. For many years before the disease progressed, Imes says she did not know she had been infected by her husband. 
She worries that there are many undiagnosed cases in her community. Part of the problem is the negativity of the disease itself and the fear and the stereotyping. If you got AIDS, you probably did something bad, Christianly bad. They don't want anybody to see them go take a test. Consequently, people don't go take the test. She's told her story to the media several times, but speaking out has caused some backlash. A few years ago, she experienced an incident where she worked at Walmart. A woman recognized her from a TV news story and knew that she had AIDS. I know you're, you're from the TV. You're killing us all. The woman yelled this in the parking lot, drawing a crowd. She accused Imes of infecting people with HIV by touching things when she stocked the shelves. I'm sorry. I don't really like telling people because that hurts so bad. So embarrassed. And that woman really thought she was warning everybody. Imes lives in a small wooden house in Coal City in Raleigh County, where she runs a small animal rescue service. As we step through the front door, pink curtains and a thin layer of frayed plastic covers holes in her windows. When I visited, she wore five layers of clothes indoors to keep warm. She weighs less than 80 pounds. Her health is deteriorating, and she's struggling to get by. Financially, I'm in ruin. She doesn't work at Walmart anymore. That's partly because a few years ago, she lost her mode of transportation. One night, she tried to hitchhike to work and was raped. Her perpetrators were never caught. Now she worries that those who raped her are unintentionally spreading the disease. As I listened to her story and Carl's, I wondered, why do they stay where they are? I'm says one reason is because she wants to stay and help other people who have the disease. I would tell them that... The worst thing they can do is to keep it a secret. If, if you can toughen up, you need to share it. Be open about it. That's the problem. If more people were open, then the stigma wouldn't be there. Because she's been in the media telling her story, over the years, IMS has become almost a one-woman support system for people here who have HIV. That's something Carl says people need more of. The biggest fear that someone with this has this infection has is doing it alone. And that often causes you to become depressed because you are lonely. I asked him if he ever thinks about leaving home, moving to a bigger city. I would rather live here and put up a front than move somewhere and be myself. I know that sounds kind of odd, but I do, I do love this place. It is a beautiful place. Although he is worried that his friends and family will find out he has HIV after the story airs, Carl says it's worth the risk because he hopes telling his story might help someone decide to get tested for HIV. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Roxy Todd in Beckley, West Virginia. Carl and Elena are both still receiving treatment for HIV and living in southern West Virginia. Southern West Virginia has seen several HIV outbreaks in recent years. And while controversy still exists in Charleston over harm reduction programs, there are some rural communities that have kept their programs going. One of those is in Wyoming County. The county actually had the first health department in West Virginia to offer a mobile needle exchange program. Back in 2018, reporter Molly Bourne rode along with the mobile van along the back roads of rural Wyoming County. She wanted to see how this program was being received in the community. Fred Cox and his team are setting up on a gravel shoulder off the side of the road, like where you might see someone selling summer vegetables. There's a white tent, a table, some folding chairs, and brown paper bags piled in crates. This is the Wyoming County Health Department's mobile harm reduction unit. It includes a needle exchange. We parked at a wide spot in the road at Allen Junction, and we've, we've made inroads with some of the folks, and, 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 and a lot of times they're there waiting on us. It's about 12.30 on a Friday afternoon in July. There's no one here yet, 
But after a few minutes, a car pulls up and the people inside ask for some supplies. Then a couple comes around the curve in the road and walks up. Whatever you need. Y'all doing okay? Yeah, y'all been doing. They're willing to talk, even to a reporter about their struggle with addiction. I have been doing drugs since I was like 18. Quit there for a while, uh, went to rehab, and then relapsed. That's Rebecca, she's 35. It's her fifth time visiting the van since May. Nobody's ever done something like this. It's my health and I wanna make sure I stay healthy even though I'm doing stupid stuff. She and her fiancé, John, both inject heroin. He's 28. We're using just their first names to protect their privacy. Now there's nowhere near as many people sharing needles and passing the same needle back and forth for each of them to use. John says just the night before, a friend overdosed, and he had to revive her with the Narcan spray he got from an earlier visit to the van. He just found out someone he's taken drugs with before is HIV positive. John isn't, but he says he shared needles with the guy several times before the diagnosis. And if it wasn't for this program, I would still, I wouldn't be forced to because nobody forced me, but I would want to use his needle just so that I could get up. That's how an addict's thinking is. Even though we know they have HIV, I would still use his needle if it wasn't for them giving us clean needles because I would not want to be sick and hurting. Wyoming County in southern West Virginia is among a group of counties in central Appalachia that are especially vulnerable to the rapid spread of HIV, partly because of intravenous drug use. The county sees no new HIV cases in most years, Cox says, but last year experienced what he calls a cluster of them. A spokesman for the State Department of Health and Human Resources says it won't give out county-level HIV numbers because there are so few cases. But there were 57 new HIV cases last year in 15 West Virginia counties, 14 of which the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention consider to be the most susceptible to an outbreak. We've debated on whether we want to put a harm reduction sticker on, 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 the, on the side of the van. Um, at this point, we just want to keep it a, a plain, plain van. Keeping a low profile is important. The county's health department is in Pineville, the county seat. It's a half hour away, and that's a long drive here. And the department is next to the courthouse. Rebecca says no one using drugs would want to get clean needles there. No drug addict's going to want to do that. The health department staff chose the two locations they currently drive to based on the at-risk populations living there. They tried another small community first, Alpoca. That's where Christy Seaton says her parents live. There's no police force there. It's kind of in a rural area. The police response time when you call for any other issue is kind of a long time. And if there happened to be an issue there, you know, it, it might take the, the police force a little while to get there. Some of the people that are using this program, you know, are not the kind of people you want in your neighborhood. Seton's a councilwoman in Mullins, a city in Wyoming County. She believes in the needle exchange and even suggested the health department move it to her town. But she has some concerns about the two current locations. I just think if, if they're going to offer that program, maybe it should be somewhere more in the public and not so much in the rural communities, which I know that's what they're trying to focus on. But I, I just think it needs to be thought of better. Cox says there haven't been any safety issues. Needle exchange sites have been controversial in West Virginia, but at least two nonprofits already operate mobile harm reduction programs elsewhere, and a third is expected to start later this year. Later that July afternoon, Cox and his team drive to Long Branch, an especially rural part of the county, 40 minutes from the health department. It's sweltering as they pull in the parking lot. People are outside walking around and rocking on chairs on a nearby porch. They're staring at the van. It's the van's first time here, and Cox has to start by building trust. He walks over to the porch and explains, before they even fully set up, why they're here. Here's an example of how he talks to people. And our ultimate goal, to be honest with you, is if at some point in time you decide that you'd like to get into recovery. 
people will hope that you will do it at some point. And we want to make you healthy or keep you healthy enough long enough to do that. Does that make sense? You need to engage folks. Let them know what the, why you're there and let them know that there's nothing to fear. And that's, that's the message that I delivered. With Fred Cox are Gina Carter and Crystal Simpson, both nurses at the health department. They can do hepatitis C and HIV tests on site. One woman here gets a blood test and the answer to a question that has nagged her for a long time, whether her previous drug use left her with any chronic infections. We've always wondered. I could have cried when I found out it was negative. She didn't know what to make of the van at first. It's, it's got a bad drug reputation. You can talk to anybody and they'll tell you Long Branch. At Long Branch, get what you want. There's some really good people here, and this program would help a lot of people. That would help? A lot. Because a lot of these people are really don't have the money to go buy new needles. So that right there would help quit spreading diseases. As of last week, they've served 50 people, and starting this fall, Wyoming will share the van with some nearby counties. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Molly Bourne in Wyoming County. Molly Bourne originally reported that story in July 2018, just after the Wyoming County's needle exchange program got up and running. Three years later, this program is still operating, offering naloxone kits, syringe exchanges, free condoms, and HIV testing. Someone once gave me some advice that has stuck with me for many years now. That it's really easy to judge other people and their actions, but that at the end of the day, we're all just doing our best with what we have in this very moment. And that can look different from person to person and even just day to day. I think we can all agree that the conversation around HIV and injected drug use is really complicated. And it's personal, too. A lot of people in Appalachia have been impacted directly, or at least know someone who's been touched by the opioid epidemic. And all the people on the front lines of this crisis, the medical providers and advocates, they're all doing their best to help make our community safer and more healthy for everybody. So what does doing your best mean to you? For me, it's trusting the science, the extensive research that's out there, and maintaining compassion for fellow humans. So until next time. Thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music in today's show was provided by Dinosaur Burps, Michael Howard, Nathan L., and Jake Shups. Roxy Todd is our producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby edited our show this week. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens, and Xander Alloway also helped produce this episode. We also want to say farewell to Eric Douglas. He's been promoted to a new position here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Thanks, Eric, for all your help over the past several years. And a warm welcome to Jade Arthur Holtz. She's the newest member of our Inside Appalachia team and will be stepping into Eric's shoes as our new associate producer. Actually, Jade was an intern with us way back in 2016. We're so happy that Jade took us up on our invitation to return to our WVPB team. Well, that's about it. I'm Caitlin Tan. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs, to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.